Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. God, thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Thank you for what you're doing amongst us. We thank you for the small things. I just think of the sun after a long Melbourne winter uh, breaking through. And we just recognize too that you do that in our lives. You provide your goodness. You provide your love. Uh, you are what we orientate everything in our lives around. Uh, so we just pray, yeah, as we open your word, that you may speak to us, every individual here. I pray that the seed of your message will plant in their hearts and bear good fruit. In your name, Jesus. Amen. In our state here in Victoria, there was a massive initiative uh, announced in the last week. And it was a housing plan. And housing's become a huge, huge issue, not just in Victoria, but really all over the world. As one of the great problems is that there is a lack of housing supply. So a bunch of initiatives were announced and uh, community housing, social housing, a lot of the towers, 44 towers across uh, the city are going to be knocked down and replaced. And it's a whole thing, billions and billions of dollars. It's going to take three decades to do. And this is not just happening in Melbourne. This is all over the world. This is being discussed. Because one of the issues is that people who want homes are unable to find them or are priced out of homes. We are seeing pastorally the issue of the cost of living coming in and people, uh, all of a sudden their rents are going up, not being able to live where they want to live and so on. So it's a huge, huge issue at the moment. And one subplot of that is the role that a particular app has played called Airbnb. And this intersects exactly with what we've been talking about in this series. We're in a series called Platforms to Pillars. And in this series, we're looking at the way that our society is being reshaped by big digital platforms and how this is changing how we relate to each other. Also has a value underneath it that there's this sort of implicit thing that we need to platform ourselves, put ourselves before everything else. And we're contrasting this with what we see as we're walking through this biblical book of Exodus, where the people of God are delivered from oppression, exploitation, slavery, and taken by God out of Egypt into the wilderness towards the promised land. And at the heart of that story, at the beginning, it's all about getting out of Egypt. But then we begin to find that the real heartbeat of the story is actually about God coming to dwell amongst these people. Yeah, there's the promised land, Canaan, that the people of God are heading towards. But really it's about God coming to dwell. Promised land is a place, but this is also about a spiritual reality that God wants to live amongst us. And so this essence of that is about dwelling. Airbnb is not about dwelling. Airbnb is about being in a place for a short period of time. And as the app came along, it really changed the face of cities. And everywhere cities are starting to ask questions. We've just introduced a levy in our cities. In other cities, they're banning it. And all over the place, people are looking at the effect it's had. Because it takes a lot of housing stock off the market and what it means is that instead of people living in those places and dwelling in them, you just have lots of short stays. Now, I've used Airbnb. I've stayed in Airbnb. It can be incredibly uh, convenient. But there's also this interesting cost. And so, really, this is, I think, a parable to what we're experiencing. And I want to dig into that today. 
But just before we do, I just want to say like where we've been up to now, just to give a quick update. We've been following the people of God on this journey. Last week, we looked at the encounter that the people of God had at Mount Sinai, where they're wandering through the wilderness. They return to a place where Moses had encountered the burning bush. And that was an individual experience, but now it's a corporate experience. As Moses goes to the top of the mountain, encounters the presence of God in all its glory. And God gives Moses this architectural blueprints from which to build a place of worship called a tabernacle, a tent. But it's more than just a tent. It's the dwelling place where God will come to live and make home amongst these people. And this aligns with numerous biblical themes of the idea of God having a house, God having a home. The beginning of the Bible talks about creation as God's house. We see this in Genesis. We see this in the Psalms. The tabernacle is another form of God's house. The temple which Solomon builds is God's house. Then in the New Testament, God's house, after the temple is destroyed, becomes his people. Paul speaks of us as individuals being also places of residence, temples, where God's presence dwells. So the scriptures are thick in this idea of God coming to dwell amongst a people. And even the fact that we use the term the presence of God speaks about dwelling, not just for anyone, but for a key occupant, God. So what we looked at last week was God coming down to dwell among his people. And the tabernacle was a way of placing that at the center of Israel's life, the center of every person who followed God's life. This is why God says to Moses in Exodus 25, verse 8, then have them make a sanctuary. A sanctuary is a dwelling place, a place of rest. And I will dwell among them. Now, this project is given, literally Moses is given plans and it begins and it's all described in incredible detail, the kind of house that God wants to build to dwell amongst these people. But what happens is, and the biblical scholar Daniel Hayes notes that there's an interruption to the building project. And if you've ever watched shows like Grand Designs, like you don't watch Grand Designs if you've ever watched this. Hands up, has anyone watched Grand Designs? Am I mild? Is it good? That's a fair amount of people. That's good. Grand Designs is never fun when everything goes right. Like you want to watch Grand Designs and you want to see other people get punished on a building project. And classically, those money problems, they get flooded, there's legal issues, and that's what brings the drama to the story. The building project is interrupted. And we see this in the book of Exodus. There is an interruption to the building project, God's big build, that occurs in Exodus 32. I'm not going to read the whole passage, I'm going to read part of it, but this is the story of the golden calf. So they've got this building plan. Moses is up on the top of the mountain. He's receiving the architectural plans from God. They're like, this is amazing. They're going to bring it down, build it. It's like got all of the descriptions. We're ready to go. But then something happens. Back down on ground level, there's something going on. Let's pick it up at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, Make us gods who will go before us. Already there's trouble. The fact that they're like, oh, it's taking so long. Like, 
Literally the glory of God is coming down and speaking to Moses. Like they're getting a sealed, signed, delivered plan from God. But what's kicking in is patience. And the fact that they don't know means that they're not in control. And into that space comes the temptation. Now, Moses and Aaron are like the dynamic duo. This is Batman and Robin. Moses gets the insight from God. Aaron delivers it. They're like this duo that work together. But what you see is Aaron is separated. And in between Moses and Aaron, Moses is listening to God, but in between that relationship which God has set up, come the voice of the people. And they're not happy. They're impatient. You can tell that in the way they talk about Moses. Just listen to this language. As for this fellow, this guy, that bloke, as for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, well, he's panicking, a bit of people pleasing. says this, Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Notice what's happening already. The story's changing. Yahweh, God of the Bible, has brought the people out of exploitation in Egypt. But now they're reimagining the story. They're reshaping it. It's not being reshaped by what's happening as God speaks to Moses in the glory cloud at the top of the mountain. It's being shaped by what they want. They create these gods and they say, these gods now brought them out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down and drink, to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry, which is nice language for a crazy party. Now, pause that for a second. And what I want to do is I want to introduce you to another platform. This series is called Platforms to Pillars. And I've talked about the fact that there's all these digital platforms which are shaping our lives, but many have their origins way back in history. We talked about the fact that kings and queens in almost every culture on earth often are put on chairs or on raised platforms called daises, which says that this person is better than the other people. They are in a place of honor. And we talked about that increasingly in our culture, we're all believing that we need to be on a dais. Everyone should be platformed. We talked about something the ancient Greeks invented, the stage on which people would perform. But now with digital technology, we're always being filmed. We're always broadcasting ourselves and there's a sense where we're performing all the time. When are we authentic? When are we acting? The line can become blurred. We talked about this thing, the podium. A raised platform, again, another thing that came from ancient Greece where they believed that people who could find an elevated spot to communicate their content to the world, that by getting under someone who had a podium that you could learn the wisdom that you needed to flourish in life. And today, it may not be 
actual podiums, but the platforms that we find through things like podcasts and media. We see people looking to all kinds of gurus and lifestyle advice in all different areas. Well, today I'm bringing you in this series and I've been putting it off. We got through most of them at the beginning, the last platform I have for you. Got a picture of it? Hmm, what is this platform? Looks like a Persian rug. There's a raised platform. It's like a picture that you walk past in a museum where you've already seen 300 other of these pictures and you're like, you're just losing concentration. Some quills on the table. It's a book. There's a couple of guys. What are they up to? They seem to be talking to someone off, not off camera, it's, it's a painting. What is this? What is this platform? This platform has revolutionized the world. So much of the modern world is a result of this platform being erected in Italian piazzas or squares in cities like Florence and Venice in the medieval period. And this platform, the introduction of it, changed everything. This platform is called a banca in Italian, a bench or a table. This is where we get our word bank from. And what happened was these traders brought these tables. Humans had always traded, cultures and civilizations all the world, always trading stuff. There's all kinds of currency that people have used. But what this did was it created this platform on which people could agree to trade things. And really interesting, I'm not going to go into the whole history, but the cities that did this in ancient, oh no, ancient, medieval uh, Italy, all of a sudden became extremely rich. This spread to places like the Netherlands. Netherlands became extremely rich. This went to the United Kingdom. I recently in May went on a little archaeological tour walking around the city of London to the Royal Exchange where they did a similar thing. And this then led to all this economic growth. By having this space, it went from trading, which just happened in sort of the fabric of human life, to being at the center of public life. And this has changed the world. It's had good, it's had bad. It meant that people had capital to build everything from big businesses to big bridges. It made it central in our lives, trading and exchanging things. But something has accelerated. In the last 30 years, something has changed. And this connects with somewhere where we started in this series, which was a little quote from a professor of theology and counseling at Vanderbilt University, a guy called Bruce Rogers Vaughan. And he said something which captured my attention, and it aligned with my experience. He talked about after doing 20,000 pastoral meetings with different people over many, many decades, he noticed that something had changed. He said this, the average individual I encounter in the clinical situation today is not the same as the person who sat with me 30 years ago. Around 30 years ago, a different kind of person emerged and they were completely different. Didn't matter what background they were from, very different. And they seem to be marked by a number of things. Now, you may have heard this earlier. If you didn't, I'll just go over them quickly. Do this earlier in the series. They blamed themselves when things went wrong. They were increasingly anxious. They often showed increasingly narcissistic behavior. They often were increasingly superficial. They had a fear of failure. They had a fragmented sense of self. They're obsessed with their identities and what other people thought of them. And relationships, be they friendship, family, 
or romantic relationships were increasingly acted through in terms of business-like. They were very fleeting. They treated them more like contracts. And these people were deeply lonely. They looked for meaning and belonging. But they fled from the kinds of organizations which have always given people meaning and belonging, such as churches, clubs, and community organizations. All of these things were also contributing to a sense of shame. And all this compounded together to give people, even if they had a physical house, a sense of homelessness in the world, that they didn't belong. How do we get here? What is different about these 30 years? Well, things happened in the world that I think profoundly changed, and people rarely talk about this. See, at the end of World War II, there was an economic miracle, really, in much of the developed world, that what happened was that the economy started to grow, and when the economy is growing, the societies are getting richer, and at the same time, everyone's wages started to grow. So if, economy, if your nation's growing in, in wealth and your wages are growing, happy days. Everyone's got more money, you've got more money, they can fix up the park, and you've got money to spend. But what happened about 30 years ago is those two things started disconnecting from each other. The economy kept growing, yet people's wages stagnated. Now, some of this was offset by the fact that you had economies like China coming on, so it could make heaps of cheap stuff. I watched recently, and you can do this, on, on, on YouTube, you can like look up old Australian ads. And I looked up an ad from the 1980s. This is what I'm doing for you guys because of research. Thank me, please. I looked up an ad from the 1980s, and it was like an electronic store somewhere in like Nanawading in like 1987. And they were selling like stereos and video players and all this sort of stuff. And what amazed me, they were like probably more expensive than they are now. So interesting stuff has not gone up in the same way until like the last couple of years. So stuff stayed remained, remained fairly cheap. But the thing that offset this was that all of a sudden there was a new solution. Debt. Get into debt. Now, for many of you in the room who are younger, this may be surprising to you. But in Australia, the bank card or the credit card is a very new thing. This appeared about this period ago in time. And the first sort of credit card in Australia was a thing called the bank card. Now, I remember it. And it had a particular B on it. And it was just like the bank card. And this rocked people. Well, you've got to understand. A credit card rocked people because this was so novel that you could like buy stuff and you don't have the money in your bank. It was considered so sort of shocking that Christians at the time, who traditionally were like very suspicious of debt, a conspiracy theory actually began in Australia where Christians were like, have you looked at the B? And the B had like, it was written three times, the B for bank card. And people were like, there's three Bs or are they sixes? I think we know where this is going. That's how sus people were of debt. So our wages weren't going up, but you could still have this lifestyle by just borrowing and borrowing. And what this meant is it shifted our sense of self. My grandfather worked in a factory uh, delivering newspapers, and that job defined who he was. My other grandfather had a fish and chip shop. That defined who he was. And people defined themselves by what they did. But around 30 years ago, this began to change. As we moved into this, that you can buy more stuff, 
People began to define themselves not by what they made, but what they consumed. Your identity was able to be shaped by all the stuff you're into. The music you listen to, the holidays you go on, the design aesthetic in your home, your clothes. All these things are ways of having an identity, but they're all things that you purchase. Now, what's interesting is that this changed things, not just because it meant that people could buy more stuff, but then there was a realization around 30 years ago the banks could make money selling the debt that you accrued. Now, this is super complex. I'm not going to go into it heaps, but this is the basic principle. All of the debt that you accrue from your credit card to your gym membership to a home loan to a loan on a car, loan on a holiday, all of these things are bought and sold on this market, and you don't even know about it. So your gym membership possibly could be buying a gas refinery in Qatar because it's been bought by the Singaporean Sovereign Wealth Fund. This is the weird stuff that happens to our money. So what this meant was society changed. And in between the services, Daniel showed me something fascinating um, that traditionally, have you ever heard the term a deadbeat? What a deadbeat was traditionally was someone who did not pay their debts. Banks didn't like deadbeats. Deadbeats were the people like owed all this money to the bank and they didn't pay it. And that, the banks hated that because the banks lost their money. But the article Daniel showed me said that in the last of this period, the term changed. Deadbeat is now someone who pays their credit card bill on time and the bank doesn't get any money from them. So the bad people are those who actually pay off their debts. Why? Because the banks profit from debts. And so this, we could talk about all the implications of that and have a whole discussion about banking and so on. But what I want to ask the question is, how does this change us? How does this change how we view the world? And I think what this has done is it's profoundly shifted how we view our identity, how we view community, how even we view our faith. And I think it's actually created almost like a second secularism. Let me explain this. When I was in high school, in year seven, I was bad at school. I failed year 11, not good at school. One subject I did enjoy was history. I always loved history. And I was in this conundrum because I had a history teacher and he was like, man, he was tough. He had like this leather jacket. He had a goatee, like no one had goatees at the time. I remember he had a goatee. It's just like he had this very thick European accent and he was a passionate, passionate atheist. And I remember he said to us, like this is year seven, first public stance I had to make for my faith. Who here believes in God? I'm like, oh, no. Put your hand up. I'm like, oh. There was a handful of us. I think maybe there were more, but they were just terrified. You know, fools. You know, you're going to grow out of this. Your children, you're going to grow out of this. Because we as a society have learned that science has answered all these questions. The scientific methods, you know, has just gotten rid of superstition. That's a good definition of secularism. That what they say is secularism disenchanted the world. No longer did... You know, he would say, people don't believe in elves anymore and God and Santa Claus. And this sense that there was a deeper mystery beyond just what we could sense in the world was wiped out, disenchanted. What I think the last 30 years has done, if the scientific method disenchanted the world, for people who believe in God or not, what's happened in the last 30 years is that a second secularism has happened where now everything's become disenchanted by commercialization that the economy is fine when the economy is where the economy is meant to be. 
but when everything becomes something you exchange. When Airbnb changes homes to something which you can just pop in and out of. Think about dating. Dating now is almost 100% facilitated in the world by huge mega corporations who make money by you staying on their apps and never meeting someone. Actually, if you think about how sexuality has been changed by giant companies just providing you your desires at the touch of a button. They're just two examples. But our lives have been profoundly changed where everything is now seen through this cost-benefit analysis. Alvin Toffler said in 1970 in his book, Future Shock, he said, it's going to be a short journey, predicted, a short journey from the disposable cup to the disposable relationship. That actually when we see everything as just something that can be bought and thrown away, it reduces everything to just stuff you can trade. So we've moved from the medieval Italian raised platform where people exchange goods and services, which built so much of our culture, to now the whole of life being a platform where you can just exchange stuff. I'm gonna do that job, but if it doesn't do this for me, I'm out. Here's his relationships, if it doesn't do for that for me, I'm out. And the world has been disenchanted. Everything's up for sale, even your attention and emotions are now harvested and marketed to huge companies which use your data. And what's the essence of that? Think about this. What you look at and give attention to is actually your devotion. What your heart really desires. And so even our devotion is now up for sale. And this is what the Platform Society has done. It promises you that it can fulfill all of your felt needs. Yet at the same time, it robs you of your real needs. Always keep your options open. Always live in a space where consequences, reality is kicked down the road. The debt mentality is not just about money. It's now about the whole of life. And what this means for so many in the world is they feel a lack of literal home. We have so much stuff. Melbourne has so many houses, yet so many people feel homeless. And so we feel this lack of a literal home, a dwelling place where we can be loved and belong, yet at the same time, we also feel lacking. So many feel of a dwelling place for the Lord. Now, what does this mean? It means that there is a hovering sense of homelessness, that we have so much freedom, but we don't have belonging and meaning. But what does it mean for people who follow God? Well, let's return to the golden calf, because I think the golden calf here is really, really instructive. Now, many biblical scholars argue that what's happening here is it's not like the Hebrews are like, we're going to worship another God here. They don't go, someone grab the Baal idol, someone grab the Moloch idol. What they actually do is they create something in their own image and they link it. Remember that line where it says, these are the gods which led us out of Egypt. What they're doing is they're continuing with the plan, which is deliverance from Egypt and heading to the promised land, but now they're reshaping it. So they're trying to sort of create their own idols of Yahweh worship, which doesn't fit. Now, it's the worship of God but it's refashioned into something that suits human wants, fears, and desires. 
And what does this mean for us? Because what's really interesting is we can't really relate to this. You know, I have never been around a golden calf having revelry. You know, I look at this image and it, it just seems like something from millennia ago. Um, I've never ripped out my harp um, to play before a you know, burning pyre um, in the desert in Arabia. Maybe you have. So I look at this and I can easily distance myself from this. But there's a whole religion going on here. The scriptures tell us they got up early. Like, it's not just like, oh, who cares? This stuff's like too restrictive. They begin to construct their own religion. They separate Aaron from Moses so that Aaron becomes theirs. The pastor who suits their needs, their wants, their desires. Moses is up the mountain. We don't want the mountain stuff. We don't want what God's saying. We want you. You're here. Respond to our demands. It says that they even reconstruct all the different offerings and, and, and sacrifices and, and festivals. They're building a whole little religion here. They get up at six, you know, the dawn to worship. This is a whole religion. This isn't just like wild abandon. This isn't Burning Man. This is like a whole religion that they set up, but it's built to suit themselves, not God. You see, we may be distanced from this, but I think there's a great temptation for us. As the people of God, this happens when we seek community and convenience without covenant. What's covenant? On Sinai, Israel is invited into a relationship. The idea of covenant is so difficult for us to understand. All the mirrors of covenant in society, even things like marriage, like all of these things were whittling down because they seem restrictive on the individual. Relationships now are more like a mobile phone exchange where you go into the store and get a new phone than they are like what the Bible is talking about when it talks about covenant. Israel is invited into this lifelong relationship with God. That's about dwelling. It's not about convenience. It's not about freedom. You actually have to give up something to enter into this, to find the meaning and belonging and connection with God. You see, we may not build a golden calf, but we build figurative golden calves when we choose our patterns of discipleship, our patterns of worship, our patterns of church before God's way. We build to suit ourselves, not God. Now, there's a really interesting analogy that I was preparing for this sermon this morning, thinking about it. And I got up and read the paper, and there was a story in the age written by a young woman uh, who decided during COVID to do a tree change. She was a young woman, lived by herself, and she decided to do this tree change. She had grown up in England and had moved to Australia and had loved the English countryside where you know there's like twittering birds and it's all lovely. It's cold, but nothing's going to kill you. And so she would, you know, take weekends away where she lived in this apartment in the city and would take sort of weekends to Airbnbs into, you know, the countryside. And so she decides to buy a property, a rundown farmhouse in central Victoria and do it up. She said in the article, I'm an independent young woman. I can do this. This is going to be my tree change. It's going to be amazing. She even talks in the article that what she's really hoping for is that she's just going to have incredible 
content for her Instagram stories of farmer's markets and weaving baskets and beautiful harvested vegetables and produce. But she says this, Chantal Weatherall. I thought quitting the city was the peak of independence. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Away from urban conveniences, there's no amount of money or hard work that can insulate you from the reality that we need other people. And I treasure the new community I'm building. Each stuff up has forced me to swallow my pride and ask for help. And my neighbors have been incredible, even when they're popping over to commiserate or crack a joke at my expense. They've helped me navigate the setbacks and in exchange, I've helped corral escaped cows, taken on duck sitting shifts, and pitched in with all the clubs and groups that knit everyone together. It's the complete opposite of what Bruce Rogers Vaughan was observing in people. Instead of fleeing from those clubs and organizations, she's moving towards them. Instead of trying to do it by herself, she's realizing she has to do it with others. Instead of running this personal campaign that she has to do this, otherwise she is a failure. She's realizing in the moments of failure, there she signals that you need people. She goes on, you just can't do it all yourself. And that's the best bit. Livestock pushes down fences, roos jump out on the road, and bushfires don't care if you're chatting with your neighbors. There's no holding on to the modern obsession with hyper-independence if you want to live well out here. The modern obsession with hyper-independence. You see, I think that this world, how it's been shaped, where everything's turned into an exchange, it's given us this myth that everything's viable, everything's exchangeable. And this creates in us this hyper-independence. Our golden calf is our own image and our own independence. And what this young lady discovered is that actually in life you need pillars. Now, there's nothing spiritual in her reflection. I think there's actually lots of life wisdom that she's learned the hard way, stepping out of the contemporary life script. But I actually think that there's an invitation for us spiritually when we take this as a metaphor. In Romans 13 verse 8, it says this. Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding. So don't have debt. Except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. What Paul's saying here is that debt is not a good thing. But what Christians should be indebted to is others. And not in some martyrdom, you owe me this, I helped you move house, so you move mine. But actually this sense that what humans are called to do, believers in God, are called to be indebted in love. We are called to live in a very different way. How do we understand the contours of this way? Well, what we do is we partner with God in God's big build project that he's doing in the world. This is the message of Exodus all the way up to here. This is the message of what we read in Sinai last week. This is the message of God commanding his people to build a tabernacle. He is building a dwelling place in the world. You see, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, yet he chooses to dwell because of his value, highest value of relationship. This is covenant, not contract, covenant. 
You see, for God, dwelling is not Airbnb. It's not convenience, pick up, move on when it suits you. God is building a forever home, not an Airbnb. And he wishes to dwell forever with his people. And so, in the midst of this platform society which shapes us, there's a better way. And pillars, pillars choose to be part of his building project through saying yes to his building plans, not ours. I just want to leave you with two statements. There's lots of interesting information in this talk. You know, you can go home and tell people about medieval Italian banking, how debt is everywhere now and a deadbeat is now someone who pays their bills. Lots of interesting stuff to pass on at your lunch times. But I just want to say two things that are not so much information that I really want to say and I pray that this lands. God wants to dwell in you. God wants to dwell in you. That's what the message of the scriptures is saying. That's what you boil down the essence of Exodus. God wants to free you from what is exploiting you and he wants to dwell in you. The second thing is that he wants to dwell in us. You see, more and more people are catching on to the false promises that we've been given by society. We're hitting a cost of living crisis. More and more people are realizing that the debt-fueled life is not fulfilling us. And this is creating a spiritual openness. There is an evangelistic opportunity that is coming. And we're finding people just turning up to church. You may be one of those people here today who never thought they would come, but are here because they're seeing through the emptiness of a world which just says, man, it's just all about. There was a book written, I've forgotten the two guys who wrote it. It was written about 15 years ago, two Swedish guys, ad agency guys, and they just said, life is now sex and shopping. Get used to it. That's all there is. People are seeing through that. People are saying, no, hang on, there has to be more. God wants to dwell with us, his church, because when people come, what you can't argue with is the presence of God. His church is renewed, whatever shape that church looks like, whether it's a large cathedral or a small house church. What marks a church is when God's presence is close, when he's at the center dwelling amongst them, and that church arranges itself around hosting his presence. And I think that's the invitation. We've been in a church for a period now. In the midst of, we had some hard stuff happen this year, like really, in the last three years, to be honest. But in the midst of that story, God is in his rental truck. He's like gone to budget direct or whatever it is. He's like got his stuff in the truck. It's really well arranged. And he's like driving to us. He's like, I'm moving in. I'm coming. I'm staying. Are you ready? He's doing the same with you personally. He is in his moving truck heading to your place and he is coming and he wants to dwell in your life. Will we let him in? God wants to dwell with us.
Let's stand. I'm going to pray. God, we just want to affirm that word, that you want to dwell with us. You, God of the universe, creator of the humpback whale and the Andromeda system, you want to dwell with us. And we just recognize that at this moment, that you yearn to find a home amongst us, that your scriptures tell us that we are living temples of your presence. And so God, we just want to humbly confess when we've fallen short. We want to humbly confess when we've bowed down to the golden calf. Our golden calf probably doesn't look like a calf. It actually looks like us, our wants and desires. So we just confess this moment when we have bowed down to other things and that's made us have a sense of homelessness. But God, we just want to say we want to host your presence. We want to be a dwelling place as individuals and as your church. So we just thank you. We thank you that you have given us this invitation, that you are building a forever home in our hearts and amongst us. And I just pray, Father, that this truth will grow deeper in us, that you dwell in us, and any shame, any fear of failure, we know that Jesus has dealt with all of that on the cross. So we simply have to bend our knee, recognize that you are Lord, and then become dwelling places of you as your spirit lives in us.